well, well, looks like you've found yourself listening to The Plunge, the best recap you've heard of all things shitty in news, politics, and pop culture. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review The Plunge with an exclamation point note on iTunes, follow the show on SoundCloud and Stitcher, and follow the show's Twitter page at plunge underscore podcast. This week, Gina Haspel decided, with Trump's encouragement, not to withdraw from consideration for the job of CIA director, despite, or perhaps, because of her past connection to torture and waterboarding efforts at the agency. In the tech monopoly world, streaming services like Amazon and Netflix are being forced to contend with the dozens of anti-vaxxer and other conspiracy documentaries that users can find in their offerings, and Facebook hired the Heritage Foundation to help them address their alleged conservative bias. Meanwhile, Trump's trusted family doctor told us how he really feels, in unbelievably hyperbolic terms, about his association with America's large orange sun, and the Sergeant's Benevolent Association of New York was tweeting about nipples for some reason. In Terrible Takes, we're discussing the Home Depot CEO's book, I Love Capitalism, Kumail Nanjiani's gut-wrenchingly bad tweets, Mitt Romney's professed love of ground meats, and the general incel panic brewing among older generations that have been unfairly forced to learn what that word means. We'll keep panicking about incels in the pop culture corner as we discuss the classic Scorsese film Taxi Driver through that lens. And we'll also talk about an atrocious Law & Order SVU episode about college activism and the unbearable persistence of HBO's overwrought sci-fi catastrophe, Westworld. In story time, we will confront our white privilege with a few tales about how police treated college students and their drug use at our respective universities. Scream it from the mountaintops, folks. This is The Plunge. Dan and Sam for the fucking plunge. The podcast where we dig and just cover ourselves in the slime of the various stories going on in the world. Our technical elites, our political elites are just constantly screwing up and we like to keep a log of that for posterity yeah we're like the mike row of digging into dirty journalism you have to hand it to donald trump he made a monday splash by <laughs> i just love that this tweet ended saying win gina <laughs> yeah i like to think it's directed at gina from the show martin but it might not be <laughs> that would be directed a... at <laughs> a nice throwback, but I must say it doesn't uh, look like that's who he's talking about. No, it's he's talking about his highly respected nominee for CIA director. 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 Has, director. 
I've been doing too much Rudy Giuliani voice lately. <laughs> but yeah, Gina Haspel has come under fire because she was too tough on terrorists. And by that, they mean that she operated like some black sites in Thailand and waterboarded people and did all the bad stuff that CIA was doing in the Bush years, those dark days. So I'm going to read the whole tweet. My highly respected nominee for CIA director, Gina Haspel, has come under fire because she was too tough on terrorists. Think of that. In these very dangerous times, we have the most qualified person, a woman, who Democrats (laughs) want out, in all caps, because she is too tough on terror. Win, Gina! (laughs) Uh, she may be under fire, but she's under fire for putting people underwater, ironically enough. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, she actually apparently offered to quit, and but but I guess uh, Trump has like talked some uh, some courage into her, and she's uh, she's in it. I think she faces a relatively bumpy ride for an appointee. A Trump administration incoming official at this point is always suspect yeah they don't keep very good company so let's move on from the torturer to the conspirators there are a vast number of conspiracy documentaries on the popular streaming platforms mostly accumulating on amazon and you know, I, I understand the appeal of conspiracy theory and all that in the abstract sense. Uh, you know, I love JFK stuff is always interesting to me. But when you have various titles, for example, if you type vaccines into Amazon Prime Video as this uh, Slate article we attached in the show notes says, if you type vaccines into Prime Video, you'll get... Shoot them up. The truth about vaccines. We don't vaccinate. Vaxxed from cover-up to controversy. And the greater good. Those are just a few of the titles. So, I don't know. There seems to be a wide range of conspiracy theory documentaries. You know, these 9-11 ones. And they're generally categorized in the same documentaries section as, say, films by Ken Burns. I'm all for not empowering Amazon and those companies to censor these videos, I guess. But it is hard to see the value of having this many, like, anti-vaxxer documentaries, like, anti-global warming documentaries. You know, there are probably some, like, Holocaust denial ones up there, too. I mean, it is hard to justify. I guess I view it more as Amazon is profiting from hosting these documentaries, which people can find elsewhere just because they're not on Amazon Prime streaming doesn't mean that they're being censored. That's valid. I am more in the camp of, um, you know, Amazon rotates out things from their library all the time. So maybe (laughs) some of these they should (laughs) consider rotating out. But it's not just them. Netflix has some of these sort of films as well. Oftentimes, these conspiracy movies are really, as political scientist Joseph Parent called them, emotional poultices, a means of coping with painful circumstances outside one's control. And they're especially popular to people who are below the poverty line, people in prison, 
whenever it comes to conspiracy theories, it reminds me of kind of, I guess we've been seeing this like whole flare up over Kanye West and his tweet, like, once again, I'm being attacked for presenting new ideas, like this, I'm a free thinker defense, when, you know, being a free thinker in a vacuum with like no sense of historical context or anything is a disaster. It's not like this utopian thing, you know, you kind of see that with letting these conspiracy movies like proliferate, I guess. The article also brings up a few sort of probably more ideas that would appeal to people like left-leaning that are on Netflix. There are these two vegan movies that are called Cowspiracy and What the Health (laughs) that apparently suggest bizarre conspiracy theories about global warming and diet-related disease arguing that 51% of global greenhouse emissions come from animal agriculture and eating eggs is as bad as smoking cigarettes. Yeah, I mean, we know that the conspiracy theory thing is not solely an element of the right. I'm sure you can find plenty of wacko lefties who think that like GMOs are, you know, poison or, you know, whatever other kind of crystal-based theories are floating around, like the libertarian left. Yeah, and I just feel like with the proliferation of fake news and the lack of a cohesive agreement about what's true and what's not true, these major companies maybe should just consider what is being streamed that's not to say we're pro censorship it's just you know maybe some of these anti-vax docs <laughs> could come down <laughs> bezos yeah yeah i hardly think we're living in like a you know stalinist hell world if they're not necessarily if we have like a few fewer choices of right-wing conspiracy movies out there but uh weirdly it seems like these internet companies are also receiving a lot of pressure and the reverse Facebook has recently hired the Heritage Foundation to help them address their anti-conservative bias. Now, we saw in the huge Wired Magazine article that we talked about a few weeks ago where it was like the Zuckerberg reckoning where I believe one employee said he was like Lenny from Of Mice and Men, just unable to understand the strength and power that he held speaking about mark zuckerberg and part of that controversy was that there seemed to be some sort of like suppression of pro-conservative stories at a certain point before the election so zuckerberg freaked out because he wants the site to seem uh non-biased i guess but obviously, like with all of these major media organizations, their interpretation of being non-biased is to just like hire conservatives. Right. Yeah. They literally hired a former GOP senator named John Kyle without the E, which makes me think it's pronounced something like like Keel. Kill. Yeah. <laughs> John Keel. They're also going to be convening meetings at the Heritage Foundation, as I said before, which is one of the OG conservative think tanks in D.C. I think you hit it on the head saying, like, obviously no one's going to argue that InfoWars is equally trustworthy with i don't know the new york times you know the the standard for like liberal or left-leaning newspapers seems to be a centrist paper like uh the new york times or the washington post so it's 
kind of unfounded this idea that like conservative sites are only shut down because they're conservative and not necessarily just because they're factually shaky. I mean, we've talked about Breitbart's wild inconsistencies and propagandistic nuttery before on this show. I mean, what do you have to add to this, Dan? I think these actions by Facebook indicate a complete groveling to the conservative persecution fantasy. Yeah, you know... Even in times when what all three branches are for now controlled by the Republican Party, they still find ways to come out and be like, oh, the right wing is the most oppressed segment of society. We may control almost two thirds of state legislatures, but like we diamond and silk were banned (laughs) from their rantings. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Diamond and silk, obviously, you know, were very popular. Uh, to black women who would do pro-Trump rants and were apparently were banned from Facebook and then they spoke in front of Congress recently yeah. and uh, committed perjury. It was very bizarre. No, definitely the video of them on the well, the floor of Congress is, is the shit. Ms. Hardaway, I think you stated on the record today at least three times, mm-hmm. quote, we were not paid by the Trump campaign. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. Okay. Now, are you aware that your testimony today is under oath subject to the penalty of perjury? Yes, we are aware of that. Okay. Now, the FEC report dated May 12, 2017, Mm -hmm. states that on November 22, 2016, The campaign of Donald J. Trump Mm -hmm. for President Incorporated paid Diamond and Silk Mm -hmm. $1,274.94 for field consulting. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that? We're familiar with that particular lie. We can see that you do look at fake news. Um, what happened is, and what should have happened is, you should have come to our mouths to see what exactly happened right. before a false narrative was put out there about the $1,274.94. So let me explain right now to you and the hold, world. Hold on, hold on one second, because I want to give you the opportunity to explain, which is why I'm asking the question. Right. I'm actually trying to figure, are you calling this FEC document fake? Well, actually, let me get some No, we're, no we're not no, calling it fake. You, I'm going to give you an fake. opportunity to respond. Okay. But in general, I think we can agree that Facebook's attempts to address its own bias have always been very ham-handed. Or was that the right phrase? No, ham-fisted. And this is clearly the you know next stage in that development. But uh, we've also got some stories here from Trump's trusted family doctor. So before we talk about this. Can you recap what Trump's doctor looks like? Because I feel like most people have seen this by now, but I don't know. He looks like sort of a demented Greg Allman mixed with George Carlin. Yeah, he's like very uh, kind of Gandalf in a jam band. Like if Gandalf and that first (laughs) keyboardist that like the Grateful Dead had, what pig pen had fused into one. Uh, either way, <laughs> Trump's former doctor with his flowing mane of just beautiful hair and like his beard 
claims that his office was raided for files. He said that he really this story is mainly funny because of the his choice of diction in describing the experience. He says that he felt raped and by this by <laughs> And then later the other revelation was that Trump had as we all fucking knew dictated the preposterous clean bill of health that this doctor had issued for him during the campaign and of course, like if we remember the letter, it was like Donald Trump would be the most fit president of all time. Donald Trump can climb Everest if he wants to. Right, and we obviously back then were saying this is clearly bullshit, <laughs> and we called into question his health when talking about his fast food addictions and his appearance i mean he looks like a glazed ham and don't you think that this is pointing to the fact that undeniably trump is lying about his health and he is dying (laughs) i mean one can only hope i don't want to live in this world where trump is supposedly 6'3 and like 239 pounds that doesn't make any fucking sense to me i would love for his body to just like just decide that it cannot go on yeah no yeah i want it to be donated to science to see the effect of like what how many filet of fishes per day on a human body just like the sheer amount of fucking diet coke in his bloodstream but one thing i left out uh in terms of another great example of trump's doctor and his perfect diction is that he said when Trump was making him write the clean bill of health letter, he felt like a slave. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, Trump doesn't pay anybody. So I like to think that uh, it's not that he doesn't, it's not that Trump's doctor is actually a slave and that he's not paid. I like to think that Trump's doctor is like a genie or something that came out of a lamp and had to grant Trump three wishes. And one, he was like, well, I need a doctor because I refuse to pay anyone, so that's you now. And he's like, oh, they found a way to keep me around forever. And that's what Trump's doctor is. Like, he's like the genie from Aladdin or something. Let's move on to a tweet by the Sergeant's Benevolence Association of the NYPD. Responding to a tweet that said, hashtag may the Fourth Amendment protect you from unreasonable searches and seizures, and if you feel your rights have been violated by an NYPD officer, file a complaint here. They responded on this SBA NYPD, is their at, Twitter page, you are all a disgrace. You sit on your ass and target the nypd all while growing up on the nipple of what's easy you have no clue what a nypd officer does yet target us and disparage our integrity one day you will dial 911 when evil is at your door and thank god for the nypd (laughs) got jerk off motion much get down on your knees and Beg for your life from the NYPD. Why are they tweeting about nipples? This is so bizarre. 
the hurt feelings of police are so low on my list of priorities. It's really preposterous. So that tweet was also from the Sergeant's Benevolent Association for the NYPD, which is a monstrous Twitter page if you're going to look at it. But some people in the replies mentioned statistics that we had brought up previously on this show about how you're more likely to be like die on the job if you're a garbage collector than if you're a cop and shit like that. But it never ceases to amaze me, though, like lengths to which you're supposed to beg the police for fucking fealty as if they're like a protection racket or something. It's preposterous. Also, just why do you feel the need to tweet? Just <laughs> go catch some villains i don't know like what are you doing <laughs> the only true form of patriotism these days is posting but what do you make of the fact that they had to say the nipple comments because the <laughs> nipple the nipple part of this and let me re read that sentence again you sit on your ass and target the nypd all while growing up on the nipple of what's easy Trying to sort of infantilize what Black Lives Matter, uh, millennials, what like there's the, always this lashing out of cops like you you're just all a bunch of little baby pussies. Well, yeah, because they're addressing a broad coalition of people who don't like the police, which is a more common sentiment than most people are willing to let on. Very ham-fisted attack on people who it's easy to minimize, I guess, as like. What am I trying to say? It's easy to minimize people who are critics of the police if you refer to them as people who are, like, living at home with their parents or they're living off government handouts or any of the other, like, nonsense that you hear from the GOP or right-leaning people when it comes to people having political opinions, you know? Up next, here's a story from the Wall Street Journal. This guy alarmed at Bernie Sanders' popularity among young people... Home Depot co-founder Ken Langone has written a book, part memoir, part free market manifesto called I Love Capitalism. Hell yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't love capitalism on a fine summer's evening? So what do you make of this book, Sam? Do you feel like an 82-year-old CEO... <laughs> is the person who should be wheeled out from his like obelisk to tell young people about why capitalism is good because it worked for him yeah i mean could you think of like a person who comes off as less sympathetic here someone who like you said has made a shitload of money off of like this capitalist system and benefits greatly from it coming out to people who if you're in line with Bernie Sanders, you probably are looking at to him for some kind of populist message. You probably are not winning at capitalism. Like, could you pick a worse person to try to, like, win these kids over? With savings and his parents' help, he attended Bucknell University, where he majored in economics and political science. Yeah, I, I, that's some bullshit. Like, <laughs> Bucknell cost like 30 bucks back then. Are you fucking yeah. kidding me? If I had gone to school in like the what, the <laughs> 1930s when he went to school, what, I mean, women probably weren't even allowed to like the majority of the schools he was applying to. It's the biggest bullshit I've ever heard in my life. You could have like a summer job and pay your tuition at Harvard, or whereas today you would need to work like thousands upon thousands of hours to be able to pay tuition at like a state university it's, it's some old bullshit when you hear that line and he's suggesting that he didn't come up with a silver spoon in his mouth that 
he believes in the American dream. But the American dream he lived doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> These just what I'm going to start a hardware store. <laughs> also, the American dream he's referring to is like this thing that was specifically carved out by an economic project for people like him, for like white men who fucking believed in the system and wanted to build things their own way and exclude the people who capitalism writes off as like externalities, right? Like he benefited from this thing that is directly designed to basically benefit him. I, I don't know. It's ridiculous when people try to cloy to this nostalgia for something that only existed for like five people ever. Right. And he says private ownership incentivizes people to create businesses that then grow and create jobs for others. Which is Ooh. such bullshit, I've been getting into Corey Pine's book, Live, Work, Work, Die, about his time trying to make it and uh, then sort of expose the bullshit hierarchies and practices of Silicon Valley. He talks about how like 90% of startups fail extremely quickly and people go into extreme debt and like joke about like being homeless and stuff so to suggest that just and especially now the way that these uh businesses are phasing out human employees with automation his thinking is just from a far bygone era which we would obviously argue the capitalism didn't work then either yeah either way could not think of a worse messenger, but that's actually a good way to contrast it with our next tweet because the next tweet is actually this perfect intersection of like three things I'm supposed to like, but the way it's executed makes it the worst thing in the world. It's from an actor and comedian I really like named Kumail Nanjiani, who has kind of a lame Twitter presence. Well, let's just clarify that Kumail, obviously talented dude, whatever that's all well and good he does a lot of advertising on his twitter page for movies he's seen early screenings of that are like blockbuster movies <laughs> always clearly angling to get into some disney franchise so you know it's kumail if you ever you ever fucking grow some self-awareness maybe uh chill a little bit saying like rogue one is your favorite star wars i think was one of his tweets <laughs> but he uh is a rather i don't know i would say just uninformed sort of bland liberal he doesn't really have much to say so it's weird how he tries to sort of be this twitter pundit yeah he's very outspoken and sanctimonious which is not always a very good combination either way this tweet of his which really just stabbed me he says it's on the stupid star wars holiday he says may the fourth be with you may the fifth bring impeachment <laughs> so one like yeah in theory you should like that like that like the algorithm would say oh sam doesn't like donald trump he likes star wars <laughs> and he likes kumail <laughs> so what's the problem here <laughs> the three together just it's too much and it is just the most nauseating tweet 
you know, I have no problem with if Donald Trump was impeached, whatever. But just this uh, this May the Fourth thing needs to die. I- I'm saying this is the most diehard Star Wars fan. I've loved it since I was a kid. No knocks on it, but like this holiday is just it- it's really torture for me. <laughs> it's a bit much, but I don't like to be the person who tells people not to enjoy a small thing that brings them joy but you know i think uh maybe we could phase that one out because it just seems like advertising at this point but you sir would probably deny mitt romney his favorite meat the hot dog so i am not someone who is disdainful of hot dogs i think they're completely fine mitt romney said hot dogs are his favorite meat and i wanted to come at this from the perspective of sam with his culinary expertise so what do you make of this choice would you categorize it as romney trying to just seem folksy because he might run for something or do you think he's serious about this I highly doubt that Mitt Romney is serious because I don't think Mitt Romney consumes food in the normal human way. He said his second favorite meat is hamburger, which is not not like its own meat. (laughs) (laughs) Hamburger, making ground hamburger meat is like a style of preparing meat. You can put anything in there, like, you know, shitty burger places will give you elk meat and then burn it and whatever, but... As I said, it doesn't refer to an actual meat that comes from an animal. It doesn't refer to what part of the animal it comes from. Clearly gibberish. It reminds me of when he didn't he say like who let the dogs out because he was taking a picture with like black people in it and he didn't know what to say. When you're this kind of like rich asshole, you lose your ability to like integrate with people normally or interact with them in any kind of normal human manner. Yeah, and I doubt he's cooked for himself in many years so probably doesn't know the difference between meat other than how it's shaped and politicians shouldn't be cooking because it was scott walker who shared the twitter photo of his nasty undercooked (laughs) kebabs oh gross (laughs) it was like a piece of pork next to like a piece of chicken Um, on a kebab you're supposed to space the evenly sized meats out with veggies so it all cooks evenly but scott walker just (laughs) thinks you like it's fun to make like kebabs where you stab like three different kinds of meat just cook it for like 25 seconds and then put it like lettuce on top (laughs) it was a hilarious picture so don't go to that republican cookout they're not serving up anything good like look at all this trash so speaking of phallic objects Let's talk about this (laughs) national dialogue happening right now on a topic once previously confined to Reddit and 4chan, I guess. Uh, Incels. Yes. Incel is... It's a term we've thrown around on the show without really, like, defining it, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's not totally obvious if you haven't heard it before. It's involuntarily celibate is the idea that there's usually the label refers to men who I don't think that women are allowed to be incels in the general incel culture, which is decidedly not woke. They basically believe that they are 
like somehow oppressed by society in the form of their never getting to have sex with a woman specifically is with a woman it's not that ambiguous right and they use biological arguments and they feel almost entitled to sex entirely like it's not about presenting oneself well to entice a woman to date you and it's that they owe you sex which obviously is a total bullshit and if no women want to be with you it's probably your fault and you got to work on some shit yeah forgive the expression but tough titties pal uh i mean i think this whole incel thing has gotten really out of hand because specifically this incel thing has become a general societal panic because of Alec Manassian, the man who killed 10 people by driving a van down a busy street in Toronto fairly recently. And he apparently was into these kind of incel forums. And, you know, these incel forums are like adjacent to what the Red Pill or other congregations of lonely, unsatisfied men who believe that women or minorities or something is conspiring against them and that's the why they cannot realize their sexual fantasies certainly like a male supremacist ideology and the toronto van attacker praised elliot roger who if you can remember was i believe a californian shooter who was angry that he was a mid-twenties virgin and murdered several people. And uh, and before we go into the sort of responses to this, uh, do you have anything else to say just kind of about, I don't know, can we just deflate the perhaps assertions of incel culture once and for all? Because I feel like let's just just get down why this idea is just so – moronic and absurd yeah and it's good to maintain that it is moronic and absurd because everyone who's over 40 and hasn't heard this term or whatever now is worried that there are incels everywhere they turn it's like something they've never worried about and i think it's good to define what it is this whole thing you know is dealing with really i mean this like we said before it is nothing more than the entitled sense that certain specifically like men have that they are entitled to sex that the world is trying to keep sex from them there is no guarantee that you're supposed to have sex plenty of people don't and aren't that mad about it and in general the incel thing tends to build up to this point at which if you get the feeling that if like an incel could have sex with a woman like if the opportunity actually presented itself then they wouldn't take it because They've built it up into this, like, unrealistic achievement or something that they can never envision in their own lives, if that makes sense. And that kind of fuels this, like, dissociation from society that you see in the incels who, you know, decide to drive a van into people or pull an Elliot Roger shooting or whatever. Right. So you shared with me this tweet by Ellen Powell. Yeah, this is where we're going to get into the terrible takes on how 
people who don't really understand this phenomenon are making these ham-fisted attempts to address it. Ellen Pow works at, I want to say, Reddit. She's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. The Her C- Twitter bio says previously at Reddit, currently at Project Include, which is a diversity measure, uh, whatever. It's a Silicon Valley thing. Either way, uh, it's probably not as heinous as some other things, but she said, CEOs of big tech companies, you almost certainly have incels as employees. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, it's absolutely incumbent on Mark Zuckerberg to deal with, like, all right, boy, like, sit him down and, like, like give them, like, the sex ed talk. Yeah, I mean, what, are you going to, like, distribute what, distribute condoms or uh, what? Are you going to force them to have sex? Are you going to... Like, provide them, like, company fleshlights? I think maybe she was probably trying to get at, you know, something along the lines of... We need to find ways to counter the kind of pathologies that we described that lead incels to dissociate and commit violent acts. But here it just kind of sounds like she's saying that CEOs have an obligation to intervene in the sex lives of their employees. I think I saw a stabby baby tweeting saying that all CEOs should be forced to suck off the entire workforce of their company. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's about as logical as what Ellen's uh, tweet. Let's talk about a more long-form discussion of this topic from one of the hideous conservative New York Times op-ed columnists. Ross Douthat has an article titled The Redistribution of Sex. So, obviously, we're not going to read the whole thing, and obviously, I have not read this entire article, but it seems that Douthat approaches this incel debate, let's just say a little too (laughs) open-mindedly. Yeah, I I think so. There's this weird line of reasoning in mainstream politics discourse that you always have to like engage with an ideology kind of on its own terms, which obviously if you're talking about something like what we just described with this whole incel panic and people like dissociating from reality into this world in which sex is put literally on this impossible pedestal, you can only really pull them out of it. You can't go in there and like wrangle with that. And that's sort of what Ross Douthat does here. He mentions these, like he's bringing up like George Mason libertarian economists who work at like the Coke funded think tanks that are in Joan Mason. And like, it's it's a bizarre read. Uh, I don't recommend it at all. I'm just going to read a quick quote that I found extremely foul. The London Review of Books, uh, Amiya Srinivasan, published a story called Does Anyone Have the Right to Sex? Um, Expanding the argument beyond the realm of male chauvinists to consider groups with whom the London Review's left-leaning and feminist readers would have more natural sympathy, the overweight and disabled minority groups treated as unattractive by the majority trans women unable to find partners and other victims in her narrative of a society that still makes us prisoners of patriarchal and also racist sexist homophobic rules of sexual desire so 
that sort of like identity thing should not be applied here. Well, I think we should give the writer some credit because I haven't read what the thing that he's quoting. And the New York Times op-ed section has this insane tendency to just butcher findings from academic studies and, you know, barely cover their own citations. And so I I think what he tries to build up in this article is this idea that there's a right-wing version of the idea that everyone is owed sex and there's an equally dangerous left-wing version that everyone is owed sex. And it's just a bizarre, like, ham-fisted, as we've been saying repeatedly, attempt by someone to just try to understand a phenomenon that they are wholly unequipped to, like, wrestle with. So let's move from a piece of shit article to a piece of classic classic art let's enter the pop culture corner and we're gonna talk about incel ideas in one of the greatest films of all time hey what kind of guns you guys carry 38s 45s 357 magnums something bigger maybe Hi, I'd like to volunteer. Why? Why? Because I think that you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. The taxi driver is looking for a target. Getting ready. Getting organized. Preparing himself for the only moment in his life that will ever mean anything. How much for everything? 350 for the Magnum, 250 for the 38, one and a quarter for the 25, 150 for the 380. That taxi driver's been staring at us. You talking to me? You talking to me? I don't know who's weirder, you or me. You talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. I don't believe I've ever met anyone quite like you. Oh, yeah? You will never see a more chilling performance than this. Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. So, Sam, I had never seen Taxi Driver before, admittedly, so this was extremely uh, enjoyable for me to see this film, but also to watch it for the first time, not really knowing too, too much about what happens... It was interesting to think of it in terms of this incel stuff because Travis Bickle is utterly incel in his every interaction with women. Right. I mean, he's an incel from like a different time. He's kind of a different stereotype that we don't see these days, which is a frustrated Vietnam vet who comes back and is like marginalized in society and finds it hard to like recover from what happened, but also to go forward and try to carve out a new life. And we see that in De Niro's character, he's just totally like disgusted by, I guess he lives in New York and he's disgusted by like 1970s New York, which is so lascivious and Times Square is full of like the sex shops and theaters, which at the same time he kind of patronizes. Oh yeah, he not only patronizes it, but he becomes infatuated with Betsy who is played brilliantly by Sybil Shepard. 
She works for a rising senator's presidential campaign. And Bickle from the second he sees her says something to the effect of like, I from the second I saw her, I knew I had to have her. It could not have rang the bell of, oh shit, that's extremely reflective of incel ideology you know, right there. And tying that to what you said, he takes her on a date to a porn theater, which she gets very pissed off about. Yeah, it's a classic scene. Obviously, like we see later on in the film, he becomes kind of just obsessed with his, his personal war against this uh, pimp ring, and particularly through his friendship with Jodie Foster's character, who plays like an underage prostitute, who he seems to have a like, kind of an idealized idea of. I kind of I see what you were saying with the incel thing. He he does it does remind me of how incels don't actually want to have sex; they want this like this extreme fantasy that isn't you know real you can tell by the way he talks to iris who's jodie foster's uh like 17 year old prostitute character that he basically is the one to say you should be doing something so much better than this like acting like he has her best interest at heart when in reality, I think by the conclusion of the film, we have to see Travis's actions as more motivated by a sort of existential dread at being like bored and useless in this uh, strange, isolated uh, 1970s New York City. Yeah, and I think uh, this is one of those famously misunderstood movies where we're supposed to interpret his violent crusade as this like it, some people think he's heroic but i think that the movie is trying to show how like you say he doesn't do it for these altruistic reasons he does it for himself he just needed to like have a target for his violence in a weird way just the sort of way that i guess men who are alienated or dissociated from reality tend to seek like a scapegoat that they can kind of exact their revenge against do we want to talk about the relation to john hinckley jr who tried to assassinate ronald reagan in 1981 and he said that he specifically wanted to impress jody foster interesting also that he shaved his head to reflect travis bickle's mohawk yeah weirdly i think in the 70s and 80s because also wasn't john lennon's killer motivated by some kind of crazy you know obsession with a conspiracy theory i guess at that time maybe because television had finally been the norm for maybe 10 to what 20 years at that point an entire generation had come up just associating themselves so much more with like what they saw on tv than like what was actually around them that you start to see these weird kind of uh, you know murders pop up where people are just sort of seems like they're trying to act out something they saw on tv what it all culminates to was so fascinating with how in attempting to kill the senator he fails slash decides not to do it slash uh, can't do it because he's spotted but that he commits this uh, acts of completely cold-blooded violence at the end of the movie only to be hailed as a hero even though he came so close to committing an act of cold-blooded violence that 
would have turned him into a you know much like any of these people who shot uh political figures or famous people that um he would have been a evil pariah yeah for sure and i think it definitely goes to show a little bit about how we maybe forgive or even valorize violence in american culture there's a lot of american culture hinges on this idea of like righteous violence like throughout but another thing that the movie makes me think of is it's so cerebral and it focuses so much on Bickle's viewpoint. And it reminds me of how, like, if you live alone and you shut people out, you kind of wind up shutting out the voices that tell you not to do something or, like, make you hesitate or, you know, would argue against, at least in your head, the act of, you know, killing people in cold blood, as you said. So it does kind of translate to today where you have, this panic over the incel culture where I think legitimately like maybe a lot of people just when they run out of voices in their head that tell them not to do something horrendous, it becomes hard to realize what your Overton window shifts so much that it becomes hard to realize the atrocities that you end up committing, I guess. And obviously, you know, we could talk all day about the cultural significance of this film, how it ushered in a new era of the, 1970s american film that became way more gritty so i guess my last point was that i think that even though he is just the opposite of a hero character there is just something so sort of sadly i feel like really bad for travis bickle because it seems that he's still just like scarred from Vietnam and perhaps could have had a chance at a normal life, not just having such like violent urges and stuff. But, you know, I think this movie is a classic for a reason. It's amazing. And uh, let's move on to something that definitely will be forgotten in the sands of time. SVU had an episode in, I guess it's the current season. It was called Info Wars. And Sam and I watched it. And let's go into, I guess, Law and Order's foray into dealing with both Me Too and the fraying political situation in the country. Sam, do you want to maybe start from the top of this episode and uh, give us your initial descriptions. Sure, sure. So this this episode goes, like many Law & Order episodes, 0 to 100 real quick. Uh, Reese Seahorn from Better Call Saul plays this kind of, I guess, Ann Coulter or maybe even Tommy Loren sort of figure. She gives a speech at a college campus, and we have a very stereotypical scene of her giving her speech, which is like in this abandoned courtyard for some reason. And then on one side, the vicious forces of, you know, Antifa. And then on the other side, we have the like alt-right guys. The like college conservatives. Yeah. The very, very white 
and and also I love how the like Antifa they were just all like dreadlocked like <laughs> Brooklyn people with like bandanas slash they're all wearing black it was just this like fever dream of like conservative yeah. like fear no i mean i think it's extreme horseshoe theory horseshoe theory being the idea that the far right and the far left are actually closer to one another than they are to the political center which if it sounds dumb to you you can f- imagine it's actually a lot dumber than it actually sounds but it kind of subscribes to this idea that the Antifa is the same as the alt-right in a way, or they're both equally violent. And in the context of this episode, we are faced with the mystery of who in the scuffle that ensues after the conservative commentator's speech, she is raped. And we are led to wonder whether it was the far left or the far right that did it. And that becomes the episode. So you can see it's a little on the nose. (laughs) It was extremely bizarre seeing this great actress, Rhea Seahorn from Better Call Saul, take on this just extremely shallow character who, because she was a conservative columnist who'd written a book, like decrying, you know, the idea of rape culture that she had suggested in her book that... 99% of rapes were false uh, accusations or something that she would use this opportunity to create a media circus and falsely imprison someone like that's a pretty big leap. (laughs) Yes. And the other idea in this is that because of their politics, Nobody can be impartial. That's like a theme of this. One of the best scenes is when the alt-right guy is on the witness stand and he, what the defense asks him, like, which of the jury members would you, like, genocide? And he points out, like, all the black jurors. And then one of them is like, step out of this courtroom, I'm going to kick the crap out of you. (laughs) And it's, order, order. (laughs) Obviously, the dialogue in this is just out of control. Oh, it's batshit fucking crazy. The MAGA guy who definitely, by the end, you know, he obviously fucking did it. Yeah, I think we are led to believe that the MAGA guy was the one who committed the attack. But either way, I thought it was so funny. It was like this very specific view of how, I guess, a certain like middle-aged centrist person views youth polit- like political engagement. I did also have the feeling that if it had been like the alt-right against maybe like Black Lives Matter, it would have been a way like more problematic episode. Yeah, I wonder if that was how an early draft shook out. But it's funny that Law and Order felt the need to take on the political situation in the country after they pulled the episode starring Gary Cole, which in it he portrayed a Trumpian figure, and then Trump got elected. The NBC pulled the episode. But the episode was about, like, a politician who raped people. Like the one who runs our country, folks. Yeah, I mean, for real. So it's just weird that they wanted to take on this topic when they had shied away from it in the past. And 
clearly their answer was, well, we have to just constantly clarify that liberals and people who are against these uh, genocidal fascist ideas are all like hysterical, like fucking baristas. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of that kind of characterization. They also characterized the alt-right guy as a dude who, like, lived with his mom, which was, I guess, kind of funny. But any pretense that this episode maybe had of trying to be, I guess, instructive in any way was belied by the fact that they were like, here's the Antifa logo. And it was, like, a mix of the DSA rose then what there was like a hammer and sickle on it and then something it was totally made up like conglomeration of like three unrelated fucking logos when antifa does have a logo that's like pretty recognizable so it was clearly just meant to be like sensationalist some of the dialogue i remember ice t who is still in this stupid show for some reason saying like it doesn't pay to play politics as a cop or something like that (laughs) like it was pretty bad as if like by being a cop, you are not inherently taking a political position. But. Exactly. I remember also uh, the Antifa guy's defense attorney saying, like, uh, my guess is that he goes to these political rallies to meet girls because he's lonely or, like, he's a wimpy, lib, soy boy or something like that. Yeah, you'd only be interested in Bernie Sanders to meet the boys. Of course. But... Honestly, that show had more substance than Westworld, so let's just talk about it. <laughs> yeah, no knocks on uh, Law & Order. I mean, that pays people's bills. That's a that's a good working actor's fucking gig right there. But Yeah, some of those crew, crew members on Law & Order, they work on that for like 20 years, you know? No, yeah, it's a great gig. And Law & Order has been great in the past, but this was not one of his finer episodes. Either way, uh, one show that is not good and that I am sympathetic to and have run out of sympathy for is, as you said, Westworld. Uh, Dan, you have hated this from the beginning. Yes, I did not like it from the get-go. I watched episodes one through four. I decided after that that I could not devote a single second more to that fucking dreary, <laughs> generic, lifeless show. Yeah, Westworld. Rachel always says that it's a really, it's like basically a CW show that has an HBO budget. It's just super pretentious. The dialogue is just garbage. And I liked it at first because I have a really, like, I guess, good sense of like what willing suspense of disbelief. But this is a show in which there's this theme park where it's the Wild West and there are robots there that you can fuck or rape or kill or do whatever you want to. And it's like this playground for this eerie, late capitalist, rich class of like investment bankers. And it becomes this like overly high-minded journey into like what is life or like how do we define what it is to be alive man and it just was stupid and this season it is so 
unbelievably bad. The lines are always like, we're about to get to the center of finding out what this whole maze is all about. You know why you exist, Eddie? The world out there, the one you'll never see, is one of plenty. Fat, soft teeth people cling to their entire life. Every need taken care of, except one. Purpose. Meaning. And so they come here. They can be a little scared, a little thrilled, enjoy some sweetly affirmative bullshit, and then they take a fucking picture and they go back home. But I think there's deeper meaning hiding under all that. We're about to find out what makes humans tick. Like th that line gets rehashed every fucking five minutes. Uh, it's total dog shit. I mean, like, what stood out to you from this show when you first started watching it, Dan? The show has a great cast, so I don't know. I just saw nothing. Nothing on the show seemed to have consequences because every character keeps regenerating after being killed because they're all like r robots in a simulation. And, you know, I might be complete. So if you like the show, I'm probably like going to say wrong stuff here because I barely saw the season other than the first four episodes. But I just found it extremely tedious. Like I was constantly just waiting for something to happen and like to bring in Matt Chrisman's current affairs article about prestige TV. This passage from his article, I feel like captures the Westworld problem so much. It's also worth keeping in mind that television shows are, even more than films, advertisements for themselves. Issues of character, theme, story, setting are in practice very often subsidiary to the primary objective of keeping people watching. All the cliffhangers and suspense sequences have less to do with artistic expression than in keeping the audience hooked. So that's how I feel about Westworld, right? It's just a whole lot of nothing. Like, it's like uh, shit painted gold, you know? It's like there was nothing that kept me engaged in the show on a level of, like, if you're to look at the best example of prestige TV, Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, the ones that are held up as that, there's compelling characters at the heart of it. It's not just shocking moments at the end of an episode. I don't know. I, I found Westworld just so tedious, almost like a fucking homework assignment that I had to keep up with in order to like talk to people at work for half a day every Monday. But then I realized, wait, I could put my headphones on and not participate in these conversations because this show is fucking garbage. No, I, I feel you 100% on it. I always liked it as like a goofy sci-fi camp flick, and then it became so overwrought and overdone. A perfect example of like what Chrisman said in this article is that apparently like some dipshit on Reddit guessed like a plot twist that was going to happen in season two, so they had to do a huge rewrite. That, which obviously this, this show looks more expensive than any show I've seen. It's clearly the production value is like just through the roof and they've literally rewrote it just because someone on Reddit like guessed a plot twist, which goes to show like it's not about creating, there's no story in mind. It is just about twisting and turning and trying to like, it's soapy almost like you're trying to keep people like, tied to these cliffhangers and this is on a show like you said which because of the rules of the show because the actors can come back and because they're robots or whatever 
it can show more gratuitous sex and violence than like any other HBO show to the point that it, just be, you, it becomes utterly gratuitous and like desensitizing. I mean, I never got down with like some of the later prestige TV shows like Game of Thrones, especially has been the one that, like you said, I like when people are chatting about it, I have to just like drone out as if it's you know sports or something for me but now, uh, i will say i do watch game of thrones and very much enjoy it but uh, and that's you know uh, i i'm believe me i i sit and watch as much tv as anyone but i, I will agree with the uh, further point from matt's article that this sort of self-reinforcing industry of recappers and tv criticism as if they are like shakespeare works that you know is just constant uh, it's this constantly churning content mill that westworld just seems to me like joyless sort of thing that could only exist in like a tv think piece culture and there's no resolution in mind for Westworld. It's just more chaos based on the, as I said, the rules of the show. If we're supposed to identify with the robots and their bid for liberation, but they also have like these pasts where they've suffered like every death and rape imaginable, it just becomes too much to like get into the pathos of a show where the rules are so like just batshit and flimsy it took me like five episodes when i first started watching it to even understand how the stupid west world place worked i thought that for some reason that people like had to shrink down to enter it and stuff like it's really bizarre it's not worth getting your head around and i i haven't seen as many people berating one another for not having watched west world as i've seen people berate one another for not watching like game of thrones or something but there's definitely a certain subculture out there of like it's fun for them to keep up with it in some way. It gives them something to do maybe in a, you know, otherwise boring late capitalist landscape. Yeah. I do wonder how the show will hold up given that, you know, you've said this season has not been very engaging, but the way that HBO, I feel like models their shows and shit it's just going to keep continuing as long as it keeps getting a lot of social media hype and think pieces written about it. So I think we are trapped in a Westworld simulation where we have to continually hear about Westworld. Well, I guess at least if we live in Westworld, I can still like blow my brains out with a shotgun every night. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, definitely allowed. Because you will be regenerated in this hellscape in the next episode. Just begging for death. (laughs) So, from Westworld to Binghamton, New York, this is story time. This is a quick little story about a time I realized I had white privilege. This was a time in Binghamton where I went to college where I lived in a house, and, you know, as college students do, we had a party in that house, which included one of my roommate's bands playing, I believe, so it got quite loud, and 
Yeah, in this college town, I feel like like most college towns, the police really just let the students uh, have free reign over the town as if it is their like personal playpen. And, you know, in reality, it is a community, uh, especially in Binghamton, where you're very much, uh, you know, integrated with the community. So I think it's interesting how college students sort of are treated, uh, certainly in some contexts. I know this isn't everyone's story, but for me, you're kind of above the law. And I found this out when cops came to the door, um, you know, loud noise coming from the house whatever and then here's the crux of this story the cops said to me as we finished up uh i came outside you know i i was obviously not uh, in a state of sobriety but i was able to you know be the person who went out to talk to the cops and as we finished uh taking their turn the music down request the officer said to me and you can take your bong out of the window good one so thank you to the binghamton police department for not putting me in the slammer for having a apparatus in order to imbibe in you know uh, what potentially could be uh, illegal products you could have just told him it was a huge dildo. Or just, uh, what are you talking about? That's where we blend juice. <laughs> it's a lamp. A thin blue line has always protected me my whole life. And cops risk their lives to protect me. So I've never felt any uh, antagonism towards them. <laughs> I could just imagine a cop like jumping in front of you as like a bullet is like flying towards like just like a cop has like p- put his life on the line for Sam Wagstaff. Yeah, I, I, I mildly thank him and then uh, move on with my day as is my right, I think. I mean, do they sign up to be like meat shields or is there something else that they're supposed to be doing? I guess their ultimate purpose lies more in uh, pulling people over for driving 30 in a 25. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we know that uh, they primarily, you know, protect capital. But either way, I'm glad they didn't throw you in the slammer. There were definitely some kids at Tulane where um, where I went to college, where they, which is in New Orleans, which, you know, the Deep South has really draconian rules on... I guess uh, any all drugs, but especially like marijuana, because it's an easy way for them to send black people to jail. But there were some people in my dorm who, when they got caught, they were sent to like central lockup with the general like population and like I guess uh, Orleans Parish prison, and <laughs> it's pretty wild. You'd end up like be like <laughs> uh, that would kind of that kind of I mean, fuck you up. I, I don't mean, know. Genuinely, that's, like that's these crazy. You know, not that like the suburban college kids deserve too much like coddling in life but you send these like fucking kids from like the bougiest burbs into like a cell with like six toilets and 30 inmates and it's just like okay it's an interesting like school policy that you if you catch someone like smoking what is i think by far like the what the least lethal drug out there then you send them into this like pretty dangerous fucking situation like i don't know if that like fits the crime I mean, obviously, the people who are in jail shouldn't be there in the first place anyway most of the time, but 
I mean, I'm sure a lot of them were there for marijuana, but it, it was just a bizarre fucking way to treat the problem. So I'm glad that didn't happen to you. And I will disclaim that if you're caught on campus with weed in your dorm room, they write you up, you have to go to a court date. It was like a whole thing. That fortunately never happened to me. And I am lucky that my infraction was in an off-campus residence. And, you know, ultimately, I guess, treating college students with leniency helped me Uh. out. But okay, okay. So this is deep. This is some good. This is great material right here. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention about getting caught with drugs at Tulane is that Tulane apparently had like a an on campus like lawyer, like an all on call attorney named Freddie King. <laughs> I'm not making this up, and he would just get um, through whatever connections he had through in the Louisiana law. He would get like Tulane kids off or get their sentences highly reduced for drug infractions. And I'm now reading that as of almost a year ago, he is no longer with us. Like this is a huge blow to the Tulane community. And uh, if anyone is still affected by this and upset, then they can feel free to write into the show or, you know, DM me, no big deal, at W-A-G-S-T-A-N-K. It's okay to cry. If you want to cry, uh, don't at me. But if you want to do something else, I'm at Spaventacular. That's S-P-A-V-E-N-T-A-C-U-L-A-R. And I want to say, I don't think Binghamton had a lawyer to plead down to get the... Uh, to... Yeah, because you went to a state school. Ah! Yeah, that's... Uh, yeah. Sorry, I had to stunt <laughs> on you. but You did. I had to have paid for something, right? Well, you had the whole situation of the financial aid made it more feasible to go to a private school than a public school. Yeah, that is the weird circumstance I drew. It doesn't mean that I don't have any student loans, but hey, you know, Tulane's a pretty university. It was a a good time. So thanks, government, or whoever made that the case. (laughs) And we'll be back next week with... More stories, and uh, why don't you go try some hot dogs like old Mitt out there, and uh, maybe they'll become your favorite meat. Also, why did that come up? Why, why, do, why are we asking the most bland, like, robotic human beings uh, about their meat preferences? Because nobody in, like, political events ever asks, like, any kind of substantive policy question. So it's like, how do you feel about that yodeling kiddo at Walmart? <laughs> Never anything substantive. Well, let's call it here. Have a good one. It's... Fuck the yodeling kid. I hate that yodeling kid. Yeah, the yodeling kid, uh, it's not irrational if you hate him. He sucks. So... Let's close out on that thought it's the plunge goodbye everyone